You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Today, we are jumping into 504 plants, which is something I have no idea about because I am not American, nor do I have children. So it'll be a complete and utter new experience for me to hear about these. And we are joined by Kristen, who is an expert in all things 504. And she will help us and guide us through the nitty gritty details of what that all means. Kristen, can you tell us a little bit about your food allergy journey? Yes, thanks for having me. I have three sons who all have multiple life-threatening food allergies and also a husband who has food allergies. So my first introduction to the food allergy world was dating my husband. He has a fish allergy and we live near the ocean. So you can understand when we go out to eat, it was a big concern for him. And I made sure that when we were with friends, we didn't have anything that he was allergic to. And I kind of just thought that was the gist of food allergy life until we had children and our first child had a reaction to mixed nuts. He was over uh, my parents' house eating a can of mixed nuts and immediately started with hives on his face and his body. And later on in another uh, different scenario, we were giving him shellfish and he again presented the same symptoms, had allergic reaction. I thought, okay, well, I can handle fish. I can handle shellfish. I can handle mixed nuts. I've got this. No big deal. Then we had our second child, and that's when we really, really discovered what it's like uh, to navigate food allergies because my son had an anaphylactic reaction the day after his first birthday, and we gave him just cottage cheese and toast, and he uh, presented the same symptoms we saw with our older sons. We knew what to recognize. Mind you, this was 14 years ago, so things in the allergy world were a little different. But my son was taken to the emergency room and it was a very scary ride. And we found out several months later he was allergic to wheat and dairy and egg. So in addition to fish, shellfish, nut, peanut, we add wheat and egg to our list of things that we now avoid. And I really had to dig deep into navigating how to feed my children. I mean, kids want to eat what everyone else does. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that I was able to provide them safe and delicious food that they would be able to eat and, you know, be able to go to school and interact with their friends. So by the time we had our third son, we we knew exactly what to do. So when he was diagnosed with peanuts and peanuts, it was, you know, we've done this before. We know how to navigate it. And it just became a part of you know, our daily life. It looks like you've definitely needed to use 504 plans with all three of your sons. Before we jump into any specific questions, can you explain what a 504 plan is and who that pertains to? A 504 plan is derived from the Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act in the United States. And basically, it's a law that says there can't be any discrimination in schools based on disabilities, such as food allergies or 
asthma or ADHD or child who may have a, a physical impairment. And the 504 plan is then derived to make sure that the student has the ability to learn in the classroom without their disability impacting them at all. So there are these accommodations that are kind of set up that help protect the student in school. Were 504 plans something that entered your life the moment your kids entered school? Is that when it starts? Does it start at preschool? Well, a 504 plan is for any student, whether they're in preschool or uh, elementary school or even high school, and it is for those schools that are federally funded. So if you're in a private school, but the private school doesn't receive any federal funds, then that typically wouldn't apply. However, I've seen many private schools adopt a 504-like plan for the students, but it is for students who might be in preschool in a federally funded preschool. So it just depends on the funds for the school that you're child attends. What exactly do you need to qualify for a 504 plan? Do you need to have a doctor's note? Do you need to fill out a bunch of paperwork? How does that process begin? Well, typically, if you think your child would benefit from a 504 plan in school, you want to make sure that you ask for an eligibility meeting. And this eligibility meeting will be uh, composed of a teacher, maybe administrators. Sometimes it's a psychologist or another kind of doctor in the room. And the team is formed with the parent to decide whether or not the child is eligible. And there are several eligibility criteria that they kind of look through. So if you your student has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits their major life activity like breathing or walking or speech, any of those things, and there are several more, but if your child's disability is impacted by any of those things, then your team kind of gets together and creates this plan. So what a parent would need to do initially is to request an eligibility plan. I say a lot to parents that it's important to make sure that you put it in writing as opposed to giving a verbal request. A lot of times verbal requests are kind of lost. It's always good to leave a paper trail. So I always recommend parents write an email and send it to the administrator if they're in school and also copy the 504 coordinator because in all public schools, there's a 504 coordinator for each school and then a 504 administrator or director for each kind of county or school system. They say that everybody with food allergies should apply for a 504. That's just what I've heard from the food allergy community. Do you agree with that, Kristen? I agree. Every student that has any kind of impairment, whether it's food allergies or ADHD or asthma, should all have a 504 plan. And the reason they should have the plan is because it allows the teachers and the administrators and the parents to see in black and white why it's important and what accommodations are needed. I always encourage parents to have the 504 plan because of the fact that even if they have a great relationship with a teacher or a great relationship with an administrator, the plan is in black and white and it lists in very detailed manner what kind of accommodations a student might need. So it's always my suggestion for a parent to have a 504 for their student. Can you go over what those accommodations look like for both food allergies and also for asthma? Because I've never heard of 504 for asthma, but that makes a lot of sense. For someone who has a food allergy, an example for an accommodation might be that class eats lunch in a cafeteria and that there isn't any of that allergen in the classroom. I know my son 
all have this specific accommodation. If there is a party, it's not held in the classroom, it's held in the cafeteria. And my son would prefer to have a separate seat between him and the next student. So it kind of provides a buffer for him in the event that someone spills their milk or spills something. There are other accommodations where students might want to sit at a free from table, like a peanut free table or a dairy free table. Another accommodation for food allergies might look like uh, the parent receiving advance notice, whether it's 48 hours or 72 hours of food being included in an activity and the parent having access to reading the ingredient label, whether that is the student or the teacher emailing the ingredient list or the nurse checking the ingredient list. As a student gets older in middle school and high school, you may have a different plan than possibly someone in elementary school. And that might include the student when they participate in activities after school, their coaches or their uh, team leaders have advance notice of their 504 plan and training that goes along with that. So if the student needed help administering um, epinephrine, that coach is there to kind of provide that assistance. So for asthma, you may have a student that has some difficulties during certain seasons and they miss a lot of school. You might want to provide an accommodation that states that when the student returns to school due to an asthma-related illness, they have maybe 50% more time to um, turn in their work or do um, a project and also um, additional time to not take a test as soon as they return. You might also want to add an accommodation that the student would self-carry their albuterol and provide maybe the child doesn't run or any kind of accommodation that would kind of change their PE or fitness level requirements. So there are a host of different things that can be added as accommodations. And each accommodation and each plan is very specific to each child. I have three different plans for my children. Well, two, one one of my sons is in college now, but they all have different plans. And there's examples of those plans that you can get your hands on just for new parents that might be going to the school just to get an idea of all the requests that people can make for each condition. Do you have anything like that? Absolutely. I do. Um, I can add it on my website and also FAIR, in fact, have some great examples. Kids with food allergies has some great examples. And if your child has a disability other than food allergies or asthma, most nonprofits have examples of 504 plans on their sites as well. Great. So now that we kind of have an idea of what it is that you're going into the school with when you have a kid with food allergies or asthma, and then you've made your initial contact with the school and you've said, OK, yes, we do think that a 504 plan is right for my child. How do you go about following through? So is there paperwork? Is there documentation? What's the next step before the kid actually gets started in school? So once the, the eligibility team has determined your child's eligible for a plan, then the team would sit down together and add accommodations. It's a piece of paper. It's a document. I always uh, suggest to parents to bring in what accommodations you have and what accommodations you like on the plan. Specifically, make note of accommodations that are necessary that you don't really want to negotiate on. And for some parents, that would look like food in the classroom. And when you get to that kind of accommodation, then you can kind of negotiate and determine why it's important and what's needed. But the document that the team creates is legally binding from the point that it's written. Even if a parent chooses not to sign it, it's legally binding. 
And that list of accommodations outlines and spells out exactly what is needed. So let's say, for instance, one accommodation on a plan says little Johnny should have Lysol wipes used to wipe his desk in the morning to make sure there aren't any allergens on it. If the school decided to use another brand of wipes like Clorox wipes, then that would be in violation of the 504 because the 504 plan specifically said Lysol wipes. It has to be followed to the letter. And if another accommodation for maybe a student that had food allergies said the parent needs 72 hours of notice before a class party or food involved, if the parent was given 12 hours notice, that's in violation of the 504 plan. What happens if the 504 plan is violated? Well, there are a lot of things that can happen. Typically, if the 504 is violated, I always suggest to parents, listen, was it a miscommunication on the school's part? Do they need to be reminded again what the accommodation is? Is it a blatant violation? Does this continue to happen? I always tell parents I have a a honey and hot sauce method to working with schools. Always bring the honey initially and just reiterate, hey, I noticed that this happened and the 504 states A, B, and C. This should be done through an email. And can you please advise me on what will be done to make sure this doesn't happen again? If you have communicated with the school several times, one, two, three, four times, and things continue to happen, then it needs to be taken to the district-wide 504 coordinator. The district-wide 504 coordinator understands the legal side of a 504 plan and what and how it should be executed. And typically, most problems are resolved on that level. But if that's not the case, then we need to talk to the Office of Civil Rights. And when you talk to the Office of Civil Rights, you know, they get involved. But typically, most most issues are resolved on a lower level. So the 504 plan is something that teachers have to follow. But is this also something that other parents of the classroom learn about and have to respect as well? How does that play into it? Well, the plan is only available to the staff. So administrators are going to see it. Custodians might see it. Anyone that has any direct relationship to the student sees it. But it's not something that is given to the parents or shown to the parents or even talked about to the parents because of health privacy laws. And what can be discussed with parents is there's a student in class that has food allergies. We are going to refrain from bringing these particular items into school. So if for some reason it's discussed in class, I know with my one of my sons, his 504 plan was discussed with a class when he was in elementary school. That was not a great experience. And I remember talking with the teacher and explaining that this is not the case. His health information should not be discussed with anyone other than staff, not parents, not uh, students. But again, the world has changed a lot as far as food allergies are related in the last 15, 20 years. And I think nowadays most parents understand what a food allergy is. And if your child happens to be in a class with another student with a food allergy, they typically are aware of what may happen, whether they agree or disagree with it. They're aware of what might need to happen. So it's really the teacher's responsibility to make sure that the parents are also respecting the needs of that classroom. It is. Typically, if a parent walks in with um, some cupcakes and brings it into the class, 
it's then the teacher's responsibility knowing full well that a there's an accommodation that says that you know we don't have said food in the classroom and b there should be a discussion held earlier in the year with the principal it's it really starts with the principal to make sure that the parents understand what is required i know in one of my son's uh, schools the school decided to make all of the treats for the classrooms peanut and tree nut free because of the prevalence of students in the school with a peanut and tree nut allergy and the nurse had the responsibility of going through and looking at each ingredient for parties and the parents were told ahead of time what the policy was and parents were reminded before the holiday and reminded also when they brought the food in that it would be kind of inspected upon you know presentation it really starts with the principal and then works down with the the teacher as that kind of gatekeeper to keeping that child safe in the class is there ever pushback about accommodations that you need on the 504 plan yes many times it really depends on what the accommodation is i know for most sometimes pushback is really on that one general food in the classroom and each food allergy parent navigates it a little differently. I know for my son, he would prefer not to have any food in his class at all um, as it relates to his allergens. So there's no wheat, no dairy, no egg, no peanuts, no tree nuts at all. And that's because he cannot learn in an environment where he's worried about his allergens. And I have another son that's okay with peanuts or peanut butter or something in the classroom as long as it's not directly next to him and he's not sharing items that someone else might have. So I always talk with parents about their child is upper elementary or middle school or high school, having that conversation with them and asking them what their preference is and what will make them feel comfortable. Also understanding too, that as a parent, it's our job to make sure that, you know, our kids stay safe and um, making these accommodations within reason and, you know, their safety. As the kids get older, you definitely want to add their input. I know with my son in high school, he participates on, in on his 504 meetings because it's his plan. Not a plan that I have, but it's his plan. He has a say in how it's executed. He has a say in how it works. If he does not agree with something, I need to help teach him how to advocate now so that in the future, when he becomes an adult, he knows how to do it properly as well. And this goes for sports also, correct? This is kind of all-encompassing, all school-related activities? Yes, all school-related activities, PTA camps, if the sports team is going to another state, that all all encompasses everything. I know my son is in a an academy in high school that he will have the potential to travel to other countries. We are excited, but we've been preparing for this because navigating that will be um, interesting. So I've kind of looked at a lot of Courtney's travels to kind of figure out how to navigate that with my son in the future. But yes, it would impact all of those things. And we would still need, you know, one of his accommodations says that there will be someone trained to administer epi in the event that he isn't able to do that. So when he goes on a trip abroad, there will be training once again, whether it's his teacher's fifth training or 10th. um, But the teacher will receive training. And 
I also have an accommodation that says if there is any field trip that an adult, whether it's my husband or myself, can attend. So that also includes going abroad. If he would like us to attend with him, we have that option. That makes me think of two questions. First of all, that'd be pretty sweet if like he gets to go to Paris and you get to come along. Um, but the questions are, when do you think it's a good time to ask your kid to participate in making their 504 plan? That's the first one. And then the second one, which we can come to after, is who administers training for epinephrine, for instance. So let's go to the first one about when do you think you should invite your kid into the 504 planning process? Whenever you start the 504 plan. So if your child or students in kindergarten, you uh, break it down in a very elementary way that they understand that this, you know, is going to help you and just explain what's going to happen. I have suggested many times to parents to have the student in the room for a little bit. But, you know, as a kindergartner, or first grader, second grader, third grader, a 504 meeting might be a little much for them. So I always suggest having the student come in and kind of giving their backstory, who they are, what they are, what their likes are, what their dislikes are, and then go into, in addition to that, that I have this and you know this doesn't define who I am because I really enjoy playing video games or I love soccer or things like that and it really helps the child learn at a very young age how to self-advocate which is ultimately I think the most important thing that we can teach our children so even if the child isn't in the particular meeting for a long period of time I always think it's important to either have a video of the child talking about who they are and what their likes and dislikes are and then showing that or having a one sheet of a paper that shows a picture of the child and they're kind of like a small interview of what they like, what they dislike. And as they get older, you know, my I have my middle son is in high school now. He's in charge of the 504 meeting. I kind of sit back and listen and interject when I think it's necessary, but I kind of want him to kind of lead the charge on what's important. And we do a lot of role playing as well. So I think that's helpful beforehand so that um, he's aware of what is going going to take place. That's a really nice idea to introduce the kid to the teachers and the administrative staff because what I've heard uh, on Facebook groups and other discussions I've eavesdropped on about 504 plans is that a lot of the times the child becomes the allergy kid. They get labeled that and they might have some sort of bias because of that. And it's nice for you to go, this is something that I can't really control because it's food allergy. But what I can control is my personality and these other exciting things about me. So let's leave the food allergy aside for now. And you get to meet me first. And then we can create that relationship. I wanted to just say that I was trained as a disability advocate through the state. And one of the things that I found most impactful was being able to have a student give their own story of what it means to be a child and then kind of share their um, their backstory of, you know, what it means to have a child with food allergies or with asthma. And I think it is all encompassing when you talk about um, food allergies in school, because a lot of times, like you said, that uh, teachers or administrators look at the student and say, oh, they're the allergy kid. But no, when people look at my son, they say, oh, he loves to run. He's great in sports. He's a well-behaved student. Oh, and, you know, he has a couple food allergies. That's great. I think that's really nice for kids to get that side of it too and to not feel like they are the allergy kid and they stick out like a sore thumb. 
you mentioned epinephrine training. Who provides that training? How does that part of the 504 plan work? First, I would determine how training works in your given district. In my particular district, every year, the the nurse for the entire school system provides training to all of the nurses. And in addition to all the nurses, I recently helped change the guidelines where they provide training to all the bus drivers. Training happens from the top nurse and then individually in the school, the training would then happen from the uh, nurse for that school. I know sometimes some schools have nurses that move from school to school and there isn't a specific person in that school, but I would make sure that if you're adding in a specific accommodation about training, that it is you know a trained professional giving that training, not necessarily the secretary or the principal or something, someone like that. And then as a physician, I'm just wondering, how does the student's doctor play a role in all of this? Because honestly, I haven't really filled out too many 504 plans. So is that usually just done through an internal team where they use their nurses and physician that's on staff to do that kind of thing? I mean, I filled out, obviously, action plans and medication plans for asthma and food allergies, but not specifically any kind of 504 plan. The food allergy action plans are used in conjunction with the 504 plan. So typically during eligibility, that action plan is used to determine eligibility along with a letter from the doctor. And from that point, it it spells out exactly, you know, what should be administered, how much, when, and, you know, how often. So the team typically takes that information and, and adds it to a plan, whether it's the health plan or the life-threatening allergy management plan. And that information is taken to the 504 plan. So what it might say on the plan is the accommodation is that a trained nurse will provide training at the beginning of the school year before school starts and then midway through the year to anyone interacting with the student. And they take the nurse takes that lamp and explains during that training, this is what the doctor has advised and this is what we need to follow. Do the parents have to follow up on whether the teacher has been trained or are the parents given a certificate to know that the teacher has been trained? How do they know that their accommodations are being met? Well, the parents are going to have to kind of ask for feedback. You know, I always say, hey, just a reminder, I know that you guys are planning an upcoming training. I hope they are. And if I'd like to know when it was done, who was in attendance, it's just a quick email that the parent can email the administrator and kind of get the information. That way they can add it to their food allergy log that I always talk about with parents keeping a written log of what was said, when it was said, what was the outcome of that conversation and so on. This is all mind boggling to me because my parents had to actually go into the principal's office and talk <laughs> talk to people in real life and they had extreme pushback in the 90s. This is all really amazing to me. I know that Stephanie Lode and I were talking about 504 plans a couple of weeks ago, and she mentioned that there are going to be some new changes in classrooms potentially because of COVID and eating in the classroom. Do you know how that or if that will impact 504 plans? If your child has an accommodation that says that food isn't in the classroom, then food shouldn't be in the classroom. If you're getting pushback from the school about that because, you know, they say, well, 
the CDC advises us that we should have food in the classroom to limit exposure to children, then you explain it's in my 504 that we don't have food. Bringing food in this classroom will adversely affect my child. Let's figure out another solution and what we can do because food in the classroom is not an option. So can our class have lunch in the cafeteria? I mean, if we're the only student or only class in the cafeteria, I think that should be okay. Can we have lunch in a, in a hallway? Is there a large area where we can have our lunch? Can we, you know, if we live in California and it doesn't rain outside, can we have lunch outside? So there are a lot of different solutions to navigating those issues, but it's important to address that now and understand what the school will choose to do based on the new guidelines. So it's important to make sure you know ahead of time as opposed to going to an open house and then finding out that everyone's going to have food in the classroom and kind of starting from there. You know, if your students are starting school in August or September, now's the time to start having those discussions. Is there a time limit for when you can submit your 504 plan or can you submit one throughout the year? A parent or a guardian can submit a 504 plan at any time. Um, they may think that uh, the child needs eligibility. It's suggested, strongly suggested. They're started at the beginning of the year or prior to school starting. So you can kind of work through any kinks in the plan or navigate any discussions or accommodations that may or may not need to be negotiated. But a parent can request an eligibility meeting at any time, even in the summer. It has to be renewed every year. Or does it carry through? So the 504 plan, you go over the plan every year. So you should have an annual review. You have to requalify or the child has to go through the eligibility process every three years. Because it could be that the student has outgrown their food allergies or outgrown something else that isn't applicable to them anymore. For a parent just starting out on a this whole journey, what would your biggest piece of advice be to them? My biggest piece of advice is to go in with the with the hope of working together with the school, because a lot of times the process can be frustrating. Have someone there on your side that understands the law and what can and can't be done. I sit in on a lot of 504 plans with parents virtually and in person, and I'm just there as an advocate that knows exactly what should happen. And many times when parents say there's an advocate coming in attendance, everyone actually sits up straighter and pays attention. However, I mentioned my honey and hot sauce method. It, it's important to kind of build these relationships with parents or with administrators, but also stand firm on what your, your student needs. So understand that you can gain as much knowledge as you can beforehand, but know exactly what can and can't be done. And try to facilitate a working relationship. And if that doesn't work, then of course the hot sauce comes out. So essentially in summary, when your child starts attending any type of formalized school that's federally funded, you can apply for a 504 plan. And the 504 plan essentially is a way to allow the parents, the school teachers, and other parents of other students to understand what the process will be to keep your child safe 
case from whatever condition they're suffering. And in our case, we're talking specifically about food allergies and asthma. And then ultimately, there are examples that are out there that are available. So you don't feel like you have to go into this blindly, see that you know what other parents have kind of advocated for for their child. And I think we can link to some of those examples so that everyone is aware of what's out there for food allergies and asthma. And then all the other nitty gritties. I really like your honey and hot sauce analogy and just to try to be as hopeful as possible and put more honey into the deal. And then if you need to do the hot sauce, then that's always available. And there's people that you can reach out to to help you figure out when it's time to add the hot sauce, I guess. The only other question I have is, Kristen, do you work across state lines or what is your role exactly? I have my own business and I'm a trained disability advocate. I work with uh, parents directly, specifically on 504 plans, whether they're food allergy parents or parents whose children have ADHD or they're on the spectrum. But I work primarily, teach them what the process is and have them advocate in the meeting themselves. Amazing. And you work across state lines. So anyone can come to you, like if I live in New York, and I have a child, I could reach out to you and you're familiar with the rules and you can help set that up with me. Correct. Great. Thank you so much for joining us and for hopefully helping other parents before school season starts. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.